Uh, so we're going to continue looking at uh, this friendship between Daniel, excuse me, David and Jonathan. Uh, you know, week one we kind of looked at how Jonathan, who was next in line to be the king, chose to put his friendship over his very own future. And he saw David and he saw the anointing God had on him that David was God's chosen king. And as a result, he put aside any future that he had and decided that he was going to dedicate it all to what God wanted. Um, and so it's an amazing picture that we see of the love of Christ, that Christ would put uh, his friendship or his love for us over his very own future, that he left his comfort in heaven to come to us. And last week we, we looked at when David was pinned down and Saul was chasing after him, and he didn't know what to do. He wasn't sure if Saul was really mad or if, if he was having one of his moments of mental insanity. And so he decided in that moment he was going to seek the counsel of his friend Jonathan. And Jonathan came up with a plan that he was going to find out if his father really wanted to kill David, and he was going to let David know through this shooting of three arrows, and, and last week we called it deciphering arrows, and, and the importance for each one of us to have a Jonathan in our lives who helps us when we know God has called us to something, but circumstances happen, we know that we have that person who is going to guide us in the right way. And, and today I want to look at how their friendship kind of comes to an end. Uh, it's tragic, and, and, and um, you can see the burden that David carries through it. Uh, but the truth is every one of us battles something similar. And so I believe that we can look at the conclusion of their friendship on earth and see how God expects us to process grief in our very own lives. Um, if you were to ask me what I believe the, the toughest thing we suffer from sin, I would tell you that it's the loss of loved ones. Right? I mean, to go through other struggles in life, even if we personally battle some kind of illness, it, it pales in comparison to the loss of a loved one. And the thing that is unique about it is every one of us come from different backgrounds. Every one of us have different situations going on in our lives. But every one of us share a common thread in that we all have lost someone significant in our lives. It's something that kind of unintentionally binds us together. You know, death is the one thing that sees no color, it sees no social standing, and it sees no status in a person's life. It cares not what you look like where your uh, influence is, all that matters is that it impacts you. Death is not a picky. It affects every single person. It's the one thing we all know to be true that even in this moment, should God tarry while we're on this earth, every one of us will someday meet death. It's just the reality of a sin-stricken world. But death can do two things. It can bring a family closer together or it can tear a family further apart. And so it's fitting that the friendship of David and Jonathan, which served as such an example of their journey together, can actually illuminate to us what the journey through loss actually looks like. When we left the story last week, Jonathan uh, had went to his father to try to seek out if his father really wanted to kill David, right? Uh, he was so naive because of his friendship and love he had for David, he couldn't imagine anyone wanting harm on him. And so when David brought this idea up, no, your dad is trying to kill me, Jonathan didn't believe it. But as he asked his father, and his father gave him this brutal answer, followed by almost killing his own son, 
they, uh, Jonathan knew in that moment that David and his friendship would now have to be one of a distance relationship and not one so close together. And so after their uh, farewells, they departed their separate ways, and they very seldom came in contact again. As a matter of fact, the only time we read about it further on, it's just a few chapters later when Jonathan just goes to console David again. And it's in that moment that he tells David, you're the rightful king, and I want to be your number two. I want to be standing beside you, supporting you, and fighting along beside you. And I believe in both of their hearts that David knew God had anointed him to king and that that was his future. Uh, but I believe he also wanted Jonathan standing there beside him. And Jonathan had already verbalized, that's where I want to be. You're God's chosen king. I want to be there supporting you. But we learned that that's not the plan that God had for the situation. And one of the tragic things of losing someone that's special to us is that plans that we've laid out never get fulfilled. And we see that as David and Jonathan had a beautiful plan. They even had a covenant together that not only would they be together side by side when David became the king, but their kids and, and their families would always be united. But it wasn't God's plan, and so David ran from Saul's ploy to kill him. And he didn't take the throne until he was 30 years old. So he was a fugitive being hunt, hunted by Saul and all his men for years and years and years. And I imagine in that time, he grew so much, right? You can imagine, I mean, he was in the formable years of his life, right? He, he was just a, a teenager when the stuff happened with Goliath, and now he is 30 years older, or 30 years old. And so you can imagine the development that took place, the circumstances that he went through. He had uh, a moment where all of his wives were kidnapped from him, and, and he had to go rescue them, and he had moments where, where he had the chance to kill Saul, and he chose not to, and he had moments where he was threatened to be killed, and, and, and he was spared. And so that really develops a man in his walk. And it's what led David to be such a successful king for 40 years. But in the midst of hiding and trying to fight, uh, David always kept an ear to what was happening in Israel. He always had an ear to Israel because he had someone special there. And also he was so devout to God that he wanted to ensure that God's anointed person at that moment was being taken care of. So in chapter 31 of 1 Samuel, we read of Saul's death on the battlefield against the Philistines. Um, Saul knew the inevitable was about to happen, that he was about to be slayed. And, and in this moment of pride, he chose that the Philistines weren't going to be the ones to take his life. He wanted his armor bearer to do it. And his armor bearer said, absolutely not. I'm not going to kill you because then they will kill me. And so Saul, knowing that he didn't want to die at the hands of the Philistines and give them that victory, he decided to fall on his own sword. And so if you'll turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter uh, number 1, we'll pick up the story after Saul's death and, and, and carry it into how David reacted to hearing the news. 2 Samuel chapter number 1, and we'll read the first 16 verses of the story. Second Samuel 1, verse number 1. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man from Saul's camp, with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell on the ground and paid homage. And David said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of, of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, 
the people fled from the battle. And also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and he called to me. And I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. And so I stood behind him and I killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet which was on his arm, and I brought them here to you, my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and he tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and they wept and they fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. David said to him, How is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. You know, this is kind of an amazing reaction from David, right? Like, you get the feeling, and I imagine even this guy who's bringing the news has this understanding that when he sees David, he's almost going to have the reaction that you would expect when you watch The Wizard of Oz and the house falls on the witch and all the munchkins come out and celebrate it. I imagine he's coming into camp going, when I bring the crown of Saul and the royal bracelet of Saul, all of David's people, including David himself, they're going to celebrate because everyone knew the rumor that Saul wanted to kill David. But David had a reaction that you wouldn't expect and definitely the reaction that this guy wasn't expecting. David understood that God anoints and God removes who he wants and no man plays a part in the killing of God's anointed. David had every opportunity he wanted to kill Saul, but he chose not to because he knew that if God, put, God allowed him to be there in God's time, God would remove him his own way that it was not his responsibility or any other man's responsibility to kill Saul, God's anointed. Something interesting happens because when you read the conclusion of, of chapter, uh, excuse me, 1 Samuel, you read what happens on the battlefield. And so the story this man tells and what we read in the book are two conflicting stories. This guy, <clears throat> I believe, is probably what they would call a battlefield plunger meaning that he would come when all the dead bodies lay out on a battlefield and he would try to collect all the valuables he could and then he would leave the battlefield. And so I imagine he, saw, uh, he, he, he looked and, and Saul was on his sword and he knew he was dead and as he plunged for valuables, he saw the crown and the bracelet and he thought, you know what's more valuable than just me keeping this would be me taking it to Saul's enemy, David. And so he decided he was going to take the crown and the bracelet and he thought, what will get me an even greater reception is to tell David that I'm actually the one who killed Saul. He didn't realize that David had no plans or intentions of making sure Saul was gone. And so he goes and he begins to lie and tell him, 
Yeah, Saul was on a sword. He wasn't dead. They were closing in on him. He called for me and I went and I killed him. And so David looks at him as kind of this uh, terrorist kind of a guy who has taken out the very man that God has, at least for that moment, anointed as the king. But, you know, just on a little side note, there's something interesting here. There was a moment, I believe in chapter number 13 of 1 Samuel, where Samuel actually comes to Saul and, and he gives him the instructions of the Lord. That he is to go and they're to take out the Amalek people. Uh, and they're supposed to kill every single person, every livestock, everything. Like, they're supposed to be annihilated. And if you read the story, Saul chose to disobey what God had commanded him to do. He decided that he was going to, he killed all the women, killed all the children, and killed every one of the men except for one. He kept the king of that time. And all the animals who were not in the best of health, he decided to kill those, but he kept all the, you know, all the ones that would make good hamburgers. He kept all of those animals. And so um, it's interesting to find that the people that he should have annihilated are the ones that stand there at the end of his life claiming victory over his own life. I think there's a lot that we learn from that in that when God convicts us of things that are in our lives, his expectation is that we rid ourselves of all of it, not just some of it. Right? So if God convicts me about my media consumption or about a relationship that's toxic to me or he begins to reveal to me that there's some kind of habit that I shouldn't have in my life and I choose not to allow all of it to be eradicated from my life, what ends up happening is in my darkest days, that's the very thing that pops its ugly head up. But that has nothing to do with what we're talking about today. And so this man, as he's coming from a distance, David knows exactly what's taking place. The man's clothes are torn and he has dirt on his head. Those are the signs of someone who's mourning. And so David knows that uh, something tragic has happened. And as the man begins to lie to him and, and tell the story that's not even true, David begins in grief to mourn the, the death of Saul, who, he wa who was his king even though Saul was, was, was trying to kill him. Uh, his best friend, Jonathan. Um, but something interesting David says there is you also see his heart for the people. He was so concerned about God's people being left without anyone uh, because the Philistines had just claimed victory over the king. And so David entered into a time of mourning. He entered into this deep grief and fasting until the evening had come. But when the evening had come, he decided this man who has done something God hasn't told him to do will now face uh, the price of what he's done. And so David uh, goes through these various stages of grief immediately. He has anger. He's, he's sad. Uh, I imagine there's a little bit of anxiety for what he knows is fixing to take place, which is God is fixing to appoint him as king. And, and so he goes through these different emotions of grief. And, and that's what I want to focus on today is, is grief and how we process losing someone that we love, which is a very difficult topic. And it's a very troubling thing that each one of us face. I could get up here and I could talk to you about the struggle of loving a team that never wins. And we would not have any common ground on that. And I could talk about, a various, I could talk about various things throughout Scripture. And we may not all have something in common there. But grief is something that every one of us face. Losing people we love is something every one of us will have to go endure at some point. And so it's important that we understand how God wants us to process it. You know, David, who's known for being the songwriter as well as being this mighty king, uh, 
later on in that chapter of uh, one of Second Samuel writes a beautiful song, and he kind of concludes it in 25 through 27 uh, with this part right here: "How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places." I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of a woman. How mighty, how the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of war perished. See, in this song, the love that they have for each other is causing some conflict for David. He loves Jonathan. He knows what needs to take place. And so he's conflicted but he also knows that they're now left without an army because the mighty have fallen. David describes his love for Jonathan as a love that surpasses even the love that a woman has for him or he has for a woman, which is kind of weird, right? That's not how I describe my friends, but that's how David describes his friend. Um, what he's really trying to say is that their love for each other extends beyond anything physical and has everything to do with the inside and it, and it has everything to do with their initial meeting where God knitted their souls together. That their friendship wasn't some physical attraction that would fade over the years. But it was some deep-rooted spiritual friendship that they had that would last forever. And so we read this and we say, what does this story teach us about grief? Um, first, it teaches us that grief is natural. Right? Grief, grief is a natural emotion that each one of us face when we process the loss of a loved one. But it doesn't make statements like, keep your head up, be strong. It doesn't make those any easier. Those are tough. And if you're on the other side trying to console someone who has lost someone, it's tough to know what to say. And so you just make comments that you want them to know that you care. And in many cases, you're telling them things that they just don't want to hear in that moment. But I want each one of you to know that grief is a natural thing that each person goes through in the processing of losing a loved one. And David serves as an illustration of such a thing. When we think of David, he's this icon, the embodiment of what a man is. He's a military leader. All the women love him. He's adored by all the men. He is everything you embody about what a man is. And we find that in the face of losing someone he loves, grief is the first natural reaction that he faces. Because grief is something natural that we all face in the processing of a, lo of a loved one. And I say that because I don't want you to feel guilty when you grieve. Because each one of us goes through it, and it's important that we understand that it's natural so we can go through the whole grieving process. We live day to day, oblivious to the world that surrounds us. And so grief is natural because what it reminds us, us, reminds us of is the world we live in is broken. Because we live day to day, we're oblivious to what happens around us, and we forget that this world is not the way God planned for it to run. In loss and brokenness, the world is amplified, and it reminds us that God doesn't want this for us. The design that God had intended for this world was that there would be eternal beings and not people who, through the cost of sin, would have to lose their very lives. And when we walk day to day, we can be so uh, callous to what happens around us. But when tragedy strikes, 
and someone we love is taken from us, it's in that moment that we quickly realize that the world we live in is broken. It reminds us that our Creator didn't create this world to go through the separation of someone we care for. Because our world is broken doesn't mean that God created broken people. God created us with the intricacy that only our Creator could. He designed us for a desire of eternal relationships. And when someone is taken from us on this earth, our eternal desire for a relationship does not cease to exist. And in that moment, the natural reaction of realizing something is broken is grief. On a much smaller scale, I I remember when my kids were playing uh, way too rough in the house one time. And you get this frantic call out that something has happened, and you walk in the room, and they always say their TV's broken, but they just don't know how to work the buttons. But this time I walked in, and the TV was broken. And I thought, yeah, the scream that I heard was different than I'd ever heard before, right? Because for the first time in their life, they realized what a broken TV looks like, and it hit them different. When you lose, and for me, I remember the most impactful loved one that I lost initially was an uncle of mine. And I remember the phone call, getting it that he had passed away. And I remember for the first time my eyes were open to the brokenness that people leave this earth. Like it's this realization that God had created me for an eternal relationship with my uncle, but he's not here anymore And so though the relationship is broken because of distance, the desire for relationship is still present. And so the natural reaction to that was grief. Because I didn't know how to process a broken world. I wasn't wired for that. God didn't create Adam and Eve to go, all right, I need you to first comprehend how to deal with a broken world. He created them perfectly. And then the world was broken after their creation. And they too had to deal with How do I go through a broken world? And today, every one of us asks the same question when we get that phone call or we see that person in tears who breaks the news to us. We get that and we go, how do I process the reality if someone's not here anymore? I wasn't wired to understand those things. And so grief is natural because it's our reaction to realizing that something's wrong in our broken world. I, I, I remember doing a funeral, funeral several, several years back for a teenager who uh, had just lost an infant to SIDS. And as I conducted the funeral, I was so emotional, even though I had never met the child. Uh, the child was still fairly young, so I'd never had the opportunity to really meet her. But I remember the whole time I was just emotional. And I was like, why am I going through these emotions? I mean, I, I know the mother. And my heart breaks for her, but why is grieving the reaction I have for this child? I think what I realized was the image bearer of our creator was no longer on this earth. And that's a tough thing to process. Whether it's a family member or someone else, we look at it and go, that person was an image bearer of our creator And now that image bearer is no longer. So the natural reaction is grief. Even though I knew the child was now in refuge, the child was in the arms of the Creator, uh, it was difficult to process because grief is natural when we go through those things. 
And as natural as grief is, grief also serves a purpose in our lives. Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes 7.2, It is better to go to the house of mourning than it is to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Let me give you a different translation of it. You learn more at a funeral than at a feast. After all, that's where we'll end up. We might discover something from it. What he's saying there is grief serves a purpose because it refreshes our perspective of what life is. Life feels at times that it will never end for us, right? I mean, we have great days where we go, man, this is awesome. I could live like this forever. And there's days we wake up and we know life and the end of it is inevitable. But what funerals do and what the loss of someone does is it, refreshes our perspective that life will end one day. And so grief is natural, and the purpose that it serves helps us navigate the emotions that accompany it. But what's great about grief is to understand that grief grief is also temporary. Uh, I think the most interesting thing about grief is as troubling as it is in the moment, is that eventually it goes away. It doesn't mean the love of the person who passed no longer exists anymore. It just means how we handle it changes and it's no longer so overwhelming that we can't move anymore. David grieved Jonathan for a bit, but he, didn't, he then decided that he would honor his friend. And as you continue to read the story of David after the death of Jonathan, you find one of the things he does is he defeats all of Israel's enemies. Uh, kind of in honor of Dave, uh, excuse me, in honor of Jonathan. And then you find after he does that, he actually seeks out any living relatives of Jonathan, who we'll talk about next, next week, is, a, is a, a son named Mephibosheth. And he goes out and he says, I'm going to honor David, excuse me, I'm going to honor Jonathan, even though he's not present on this earth anymore. Because we see in that moment that <coughs> grieving happened in the moment, but grief is only temporary for the season. Grief has a purpose, but grief has a limit. David writes in Psalms 35 and verse number 5, Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. I'm no meteorologist, but I do understand that as rainy as it may be, and as seemingly as rainy and as long as it may be, I know one thing is for sure, that the sun will come back out. And even though I may not be an expert on grief, and it's one of those topics you don't ever want to be an expert in because I do not enjoy going through it, I do know that the sun does come back out in the life of a person who's grieving. That they do begin to see that God has some kind of plan for their life. Grief will end. Life will resume. But that happens because of the last thing I want to say. God is faithful. Right? As tough as grief is, grief always serves as a reminder of how faithful God really is. David learned God's faithfulness by God honoring the covenant that he had made with David. But grief is very shaky in time for the griever. When I lost my grandfather, I remember the roller coaster of emotions that everybody in our family had went through. I was angry, I was sad, I was happy as we reminisce, and then I was angry and I was sad and I was happy. And it just seems like those were the emotions that I cycle through on a daily basis. And, 
And it seemed like they were ever changing. But what did remain true through all of that was God's faithfulness towards me and towards my family. It did not mean that I felt God comforted me in that moment, though He was. It meant that I knew that God's promises would still be carried out even if someone was no longer present. God's, faithful, God's faithfulness meant an eternal reunion with my grandfather. God's faithfulness meant that he was loving a new widow. I look at the words that God speaks to us through his holy word, and I know that he's faithful to each and every one of those words. And it's what gets us through the grief. It's because we know that he sticks to what he says. You know, David wrote this beautiful thing in Psalms 56 and 8. He says, You have kept count of my tossings. You put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? And I love this verse because we have this image of God catching our tears when we grieve and when we mourn. And it reminds us that He does not sit back in anger at our grief, but He enters into our grief with us. Why? Because He's faithful. In John 11, we have this story of Jesus bringing Lazarus back to life. And, and, and most of you are familiar with that story. But before he, in, before he meets the grief of the people, bringing Lazarus back from the dead, he actually enters into the grief with the people. He walks into Bethany and he sees all the mourners. He sees Mary and Martha, devoted people of his, a dear friend Lazarus he knows has passed away. He doesn't come right in and say, all right, get up, Lazarus, it's time to get up. Matter of fact, he doesn't even come immediately to raise Lazarus from the dead. But when Jesus does show up on the scene, he enters into the grief of the people. We actually find those two words that we're all familiar with, Jesus wept. That Jesus entered into the grief of the people, and God does that in our lives. God catches our tears, meaning that God enters into the grief with us because he's faithful to, to his people. But God's faithfulness is not only inserted over our grief, but it's inserted in our grief. Isaiah 53, 4 through 5 says, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions, He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. In the preparation of loss, Christ bore it on the cross. Why? Because he's greater than our grief. Our grief has been handled by our Savior, and God remains faithful through it all. And the reason we overcome grief is that he that lives in us has overcome the world. That God's faithfulness to us in grief is ultimately displayed on the cross and through the reward that we receive in heaven. The solution to the affliction of grief, grief in our life was for God to send the comforter, the paraclete, right? The one who would come in and help us through those moments. That in our grief, he reminds us of a promise of a reunion that was coming one day. That grief is temporary. Because as John writes in Revelation 21, as he talks about the new heaven, the new earth, and, and new Jerusalem, he says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain. For the former things have passed away. Your grief will dissipate when we stand before our Savior as He wipes away the tears 
from our eyes and removes the threat of death, which causes us to grieve. David wrote so many beautiful psalms about grief. When I was studying this, there was at least ten ten different ones that he had written. And losing Jonathan teaches us so much on how we process the loss of a loved one. That grief is a natural reaction and it serves a purpose in loss. That it's uncomfortable, but we know that it it is temporary because God has a greater plan for us. And that we see through grief that God is faithful and he enters into our grief with us. And our grief is overcome and our reward is eternal if we remain faithful to the one who is faithful to us. Processing lost loved ones, processing people that we cherish, leaving this earth is such a difficult obstacle that is the curse of sin. And the thing that is troubling about the curse of sin is the hope that I have as a Christian is a reunion with those who also place their trust in God that we can be reunited in eternity one day. But if you're here this morning and you've never surrendered your life to Christ, that hope of a faithful God no longer exists in your life because the faithfulness he displays to us is the promise of a reunion. And the promise of a reunion comes through a sacrifice to him of our lives. And so to experience hope, to process loss in a way that changes the way you view the world first happens at an encounter at the foot of the cross. That he who bore our sins becomes the one who leads our lives. That at the foot of the cross, I not only know about a Savior who changed the world, but I also have a Savior who changed my world. And if you're here today and you go, that's great, God can help me through the loss, not so fast if you haven't given your life to Him. Processing loss without God is unimaginable to me. I've never had to experience I've never had to experience the reality of losing someone that I cherished and question if I would be reunited with them. And so if you're here today, I want to challenge you in your walk. If you're here and you've never surrendered your life to Christ, then you have no idea what hope I talk about, but you can experience it today. And if you're here today and that's your story, then those who have that hope of God struggle with the reality that one day you'll meet death. And so the encouragement I have of the loved ones leaving, knowing that there's a reunion, they don't have that. That God has called you to this moment in time to understand that processing loss starts on your knees. And that processing loss for believers actually strengthens us because we see the faithfulness of our God and we see the promise of an eternal reunion. Let's pray. God, thank you for who you are. That you love us, you care for us, even despite our shortcomings and our failures. And God, that you had such an immense love for us, that you gave an escape plan from loss. That you gave us a rescue plan from grief. And that plan involves you. And so today, God, I lift up to you each and every person here. God, as we all share the burden of losing a loved one, Lord, I lift them.